0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another Wildlife For You podcast episode. I'm Stephanie Payne, and I'm joined here by my longtime best friend and wildlifer for life, Daryl Ratajak. Daryl, before we get started, first, let me warn you that the heat wave is finally over here. So I do have my windows open, which means that you might pick up on the birds uh, that are out in the yard. But more importantly, you have just spent the better part of the last two weeks on a sweet New Mexico caldera elk hunt. So, care to give us some highlights? I know I know the pictures and the videos that you posted on Facebook were absolutely fantastic.
1: Sure. I just want to tell you, I've had the most phenomenal 10 days of my life. I, in fact, I will be posting a whole lot more pictures and videos on my Facebook page if you want to check out uh, the results of my hunt. Unfortunately, there's no results in a freezer I did not get an elk but man Steph I cannot tell you the memories and experiences I've had over the last 10 days I I believe I sent you some some yeah, auditory what, what? yeah what? you did
0: you sent me you sent me audio you sent me video there was like bull well, doing river dance in front of you like within oh, like five minutes
1: I know I know I know and I got video of me sneaking up on an elk like getting within bow range and me blowing the shot but I've got good reason for that anyway it was absolutely phenomenal this place is heaven on earth if if you like elk lying in bed just listening to the elk bugle or just going out there they were all over the place the place is absolutely magical and I will give highlights on my Facebook page soon, but it was a much, much needed Elk hunt and one that I will never ever forget. But thanks for asking.
0: Well, like I said, I know from what I saw, the pictures that you sent me in the video and the audio, it was truly picture perfect. You know, you really were surrounded by so much beauty that that I was floored by it. It was crazy.
1: Yeah, it, it, it really is one of my favorite places. This Bayez Caldera. It's, on the, it's in the middle of the Santa Fe National Forest, and to be perfectly honest, you're right. It's it's some of the most fantastic displays of Mother Nature that you could possibly imagine. And hey, maybe one day if you're lucky, I'll even take you down there. I'll I'll hold you to that. Um, careful what you say there, Steph. You know <laughs> this is being recorded, and so um, <laughs> yeah, um, I, you you now have no reason not to go because that that invitation is always open to you
0: duly noted. So anyway, while Daryl was off having fun, I decided to do some research on a topic that he casually mentioned one day that really kind of sparked an interest in me. It really seemed interesting. And it's regarding a concept that's often called the ecology of fear or the landscape of fear. But I prefer to think of it as ecological vigilance. So Dee, do you want to tell everybody what topic you mentioned?
1: Sure. be happy to, Steph. It, it was actually an article that I read that spurred some thought, and the article was talking about PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder in wildlife. Now, we've all seen the anecdotal evidence for animals having like sadness or loneliness, and we, we talked about it quite a bit in one of our past episodes on animal emotions, so if you're interested in hearing more about that aspect of it, by all means, have a listen to that episode.
0: Yeah, agreed that um, the article that you mentioned and you sent me a link for it is where I'd really like to start this episode though because of the spin that the article took. So we should say this article wasn't a scientific journal paper. it was literally a, a, a normal literary article um, and it was in I think it was in the Atlantic. So this article it talked about some of the recent research being done by psychologists and ecologists related to, that that ecological vigilance
1: yeah and that article did and was doing a, a really good job explaining things but right now i don't think we are staff so can you explain can you explain to our listeners what ecological vigilance or what what other co- what others call the ecology of fear or landscape of fear explain to our listeners what that is all about
0: Yeah, sorry, I probably should have started off with that instead of assuming people knew what I was talking about. So boiling it down to the basics, ecological vigilance is the natural behaviors that prey animals display when they're in an area where there's predators that hunt them. So the the easiest way, let's think about it um, with deer. So deer that live in areas where there's natural predators like wolves and cougars, they act completely differently than deer who live in areas where the only real predators they have are man. So in an area that only has hunters, uh, man hunters, and no other natural predators, deer have a tendency to become, well, secure. Um, Secure that they aren't going to be eaten by something. So they wander around at a slow pace, head down, chomping away on whatever they want to eat. They literally stick around as long as the food is there that they want to eat, because let's face it, there's nothing that's going to pressure them away from their favorite veggies. Now let's look at deer in areas that have other natural predators besides hunters. In those areas, the deer browse a bit and nibble. Ears are always listening. Heads are going up at regular intervals and looking around and they stay on the move more. You know, they tend to act more like deer and less like say domesticated livestock. That constant vigilance that, you know, the ears constantly listening the head up every few minutes looking around That's because they don't want to go from eating dinner to being dinner. And it's an important trait for wildlife to have. And it's not only important because it keeps them from becoming dinner, it's important because it promotes biological diversity. So the deer in this example, they don't decimate their favorite food sources uh, and then their second favorite food source and then their third favorite food source. You know, the next thing that, that you know if they have the ability to do that is that we're completely lacking in biological diversity.
1: That, that was perfect. You, you explained it extremely extremely well and the, the whole time you were talking about that I couldn't couldn't help but relate to this this past elk hunt that I have. I, I'll tell you what Steph, where I was hunting it was pretty remote. it was it was like a 90 minute drive down a dirt road just to get to our base camp which was at 10,000 feet. so these these elk uh, they, they're not used to being around man, but they do have other predators. they got mountain lions and bears. And I will tell you, I saw hundreds of elk throughout that, those ten days. I would have elk walking to me, and before they before they got within range, something wasn't right. They, like you said, their ears are constantly on alert. the The main thing is their nose; they're they're constantly sniffing, and we had to play the wind all the time because if an elk detected the, these wild elk that are not used to Um, humans around, they're, they're afraid of humans because they're a predator. If they caught wind of you, they were up and out of there. They, they just turn around and head back the other way. So it was, it was amazing how you described that because deer that have no fear of humans, they, they act just like livestock, like you said. And unfortunately, livestock can have tremendous impact on the habitat. So anyway, it's important to remember, um, when we're talking about these animals, whether or not it's deer or other prey species, that being dinner isn't a bad thing. Sure, it's not what that particular deer wanted. The one that becomes dinner for, say, the wolf or the cougar, they're not particularly happy about becoming dinner, but that is nature. It's all about maintaining a balance. And so, even though the deer dies, the wolf lives or the bear lives. So I also like, Steph, how you said other natural predators besides mankind. The one thing that so many of us forget is that this planet evolved with human beings being predator and sometimes prey. We also have that ecological vigilance hardwired into our own brains.
0: Yeah. So so let's talk more about that article, Dee, because, you know, it really did start off pretty well and. In- It's not that they got anything wrong. It's just how they presented the data. So for example, this article, it talks about certain natural, excuse me, certain natural chemicals that affect the body. And some of those chemicals during high stress situations, for example, can lead to things like, you know, decreased number of offspring or smaller offspring. Now, at a glance, we would look at all that data and say, oh, wow, that's that's bad, right? That's bad. But there's something that we need to remember about that balance that you mentioned. What we're, you know, what we're talking about, you know, just a minute ago, it's it's all about this thing that, that you and I, Dee, we call it carrying capacity. But um that probably only means something to us. So Dee, can you can you explain carrying capacity for us?
1: I would love to. Carrying carrying capacity is is one of those nerdy biological terms that that you and I love to throw around, but it's not something that the general public uses every day. So whenever you hear someone, some biologist or Stephanie or I talking about carrying capacity, what we're talking about is the number of animals that mother nature can carry. And th- there's a couple ways to think about it. The, the primary way is how much food can that habitat or can that land produce so a certain mountain range or a certain meadow can only produce enough food to carry x amount of deer or x amount of rabbits and so that is the carrying capacity that's all that mother nature can provide for it now i'll throw a little spin on here carrying capacity you can also throw in a little bit of that whole predator prey relationship so if you have a hundred rabbits or deer in an area that carrying capacity can be reduced by the number of predators that are in there as well. So literally carrying capacity is the the maximum number of animals that mother nature can can carry of a certain species.
0: Okay so when we're we're talking about wildlife what we have to remember is that there are two um, shall we say categories that we put all animals in and those are called R-selected species and K-selected species. So, Dee, you're on a you're on a roll. Want to explain yeah. those two?
1: Oh, oh, the good old R and K-selected species. That that's one of those terms or two of those terms that like fly right over every, everyone's head when when we mention that. And I try m- not to mention it too often because it's. It is total jargon. So when we're talking about an r-selected species or a k-selected species, we're literally talking about the uh, the
0: reproduct- reproductive strategy, right?
1: Yeah, it's the it's the reproductive capacity or strategy is a better term for an individual species. And the easiest way to remember is there are some species that will throw out a whole bunch of offspring kind of rolling the dice, hoping that a couple of them survive because they're they're short-lived. They, they tend not to have a lot of, um, they, they don't have that paternal or maternal care given. So they, they give birth to a lot of babies and they kind of just don't really care for them too much and they just hope a couple of them make it. Those, the best way to understand or remember that, are the R-selected species. So think R for rabbit. So rabbits have lots of babies they don't have a lot of maternal care for them, so they just put out a whole bunch of, you, you've heard the term, breeding like rabbits. That's that's what they do. They have a lot of babies, and they hope that a couple of them survive. They know a lot of them will not make it, but that's that's their, their reproductive strategy. The K-selected species, on the other hand, is where they're usually longer-lived species, and they invest a lot of maternal care in raising that offspring. Therefore, they only give birth to a few. And so things like the great apes or humans or bears, they, they, give, they give birth to fewer babies or offspring, but they care for them a much longer period of time. And so once again, they're, they're hoping to a couple of them will make it, but the, the likelihood of their offspring surviving is much higher because of that maternal care that they give. So those K selected invest a whole lot more time and effort into fewer offspring than the R selected, which just pump out a whole bunch and hope hope a couple of them make it. Did I perfect. did I explain no, that?
0: Yes. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did great. It was perfect. So now right about here. I bet our listeners might be asking themselves what all of this has to do with animal PTSD, but no worries. um, I am about to fill you in. So, that carrying capacity is all based on what the land can handle, you know, how much the land can actually support. So, this article talks about lynx and hares and how every few years the hair population will skyrocket, which means that shortly thereafter, because the the prey, you know, there are prey species for the lynx the lynx population will skyrocket right after that. So in terms of the land, the rabbits have periods where they can have dense populations and the vegetation on that land takes a hit. And then the lynx catches up um, because you know, suddenly they have more rabbits to eat, so their offspring are having a, a better success rate. Um, and you know that, that then turns around and it decreases the rabbit population, which allows the vegetation to recover and then soon after that, the lynx population will also start to wane because the rabbit population is no longer booming, growing as fast as it was. Now the article that I was re- referring to, it postulates that hares who are living in constant fear of becoming dinner with you know lots of chases and near misses uh, where they are barely escaping becoming dinner, that it causes similar chemicals and psychological reactions that in humans, we relate to PTSD. Now, those chemicals and psychological reactions then cause the rabbit to have smaller litter sizes. Those litters may not have as robust offspring. So when that happens, like I said, the lynx population is also sure to decrease as well. But again, as I mentioned, this period also allows the vegetation to get a break from that constant pressure from the rabbits.
1: So let me get this straight. What what you just took you about 20 years to say... <laughs> is is that ptsd described in that article is actually kind of like a normal state for wildlife
0: uh yes (laughs) i guess that is the the really simple way to say it but uh, as always i think too much and i think that this is a case where we have to be careful with how we define ptsd you know for a human we often think of ptsd in terms of soldiers who have experienced like warfare police who have been involved in a firefight, um, experiencing suicide within your family, especially for the, the family member or the person who was first on scene, severe domestic violence, things that we tend to do to each other in some way or another. And for the record, I want to be very, very clear that I am in no way trying to minimize any type of PTSD. But what I am trying to say is that we experience some of those same chemicals and those psychological things On a far lesser scale if we're say driving in heavy traffic on the interstate you know we get stressed we stay stressed we have those same chemicals pumping into our system at that time we have anger outbursts and other irrational displays of emotion and at the end of it all because we're in a situation where we really aren't in control and it is a situation every single time we drive where it could be fatal. You know, it's, it's just, that's the natural state of driving. That's the the facts of, of the world when it comes to driving. So I'm, I'm just curious how we're defining PTSD for wildlife and if it's even possible because we're, again, we're taking these biological indicators like these chemical um, things that are occurring biologically. And then we're slapping a human label on there for a construct that we've defined, but yet you know, we have levels of it because again, not, not to really go back into my explanation, but we have true PTSD and then we just have these, these experiences almost daily that put us in very high levels of stress for a very long time that do leave effects in our mind as well. Um, Does that, does that make any sense at all, Dee? Oh my gosh. That,
1: that makes perfect sense to me I absolutely loved how you described the situation of driving in a car now I will tell you I'm one of those rational drivers and I've seen you drive and you you tend to use that that one finger (laughs) and no I'm just kidding Um, no he's not he's
0: just kidding
1: (laughs) I forgot your mom (laughs) listens
0: my mom has where do you think I learned it
1: No, but th- that makes perfect sense. It's, it's something we do every single day. We drive a car and there's stress involved with driving a car. Something can come out of the blue. Yeah, you, you have these erratic drivers that you have to respond to. And yes, you're going to get stressed. You're going to, you're going to have that shot of cortisol when you mention some of those, those, I think you said hormones or chemicals that are released. It's, it's a cortisol and it it's it's that thing that helps you survive and react to stressful situations, and we get little doses of that every single day, but it's nothing like um, the, the the shock and trauma of what we consider PTSD. So the one thing I, I do want to say is, in no way, shape, or form do I want to belittle any of the trauma that that people suffer, who who suffer from PTSD. You mentioned soldiers and. Um, first responders and uh, situations with with the the suicides and it's it, that is truly something that that is can be very, very traumatic. And I'm just not sure that what they're describing here in this article is applicable to wildlife because like you said, they're everyday events for these this wildlife that, that's simply what they live with. So I agree there's there's some commonalities, but once again, we're trying, we're trying to apply too many human traits to wildlife sometimes. And the bottom line is we simply do not understand what's happening within that wildlife's mind since our only perspective is the human perspective. So I guess it's understandable that we try to describe it in ways that we understand. Understand?
0: (laughs) (laughs) How many times can D say understand in one breath? You know, yeah, I I think I do. I will say I didn't stop with just that article. You know, I actually went to read some other journal entries on this topic and there are some correlations between the psychological and biological effects that we call PTSD and at least a wildlife equivalent. Now, I'm I'm gonna go off a little bit geeky here. I promise I won't go too hardcore on it. But one of the things um, that just my brain hit on just now, when I was reading the scientific journal article, one of the things that they did is they actually measured, um, deep I, I'm going, okay. So there's a thing called the amygdala and the amygdala it's, um,
1: You're it's a geek. part of the
0: neural system. I am <laughs> a geek. It's part of the, it's part of the neural system and it's what processes kind of that fear and threat stimuli. It's that thing that triggers the fight or flight defense. Um, and so they they measured some amygdala function in some of these wildlife that they were doing these tests on. And then there's another thing uh, in your brain that's called a hippocampus. And it's this really complex thing that's embedded really deep into your temporal lobe. And it's really important in all of your learning and memory. So when you put these two together, you've got this amygdala that's triggering this fight or flight, and then you've got your hippocampus that is putting that and committing that to memory. And those are the two things that they're trying to measure when they were actually looking at these, what they're labeling as PTSD or the wildlife equivalent of PTSD. But there's one thing, and just just so we know how they were actually looking at that, but there's one thing that I want to point out about that decreased survival with the young. Do you mind if I take a sec to point something out?
1: No, go ahead point away.
0: Okay, well, it's reasonable to think that if, you know, one of the reasons, that for this, you know, those vigilant animals, let's just say it's a bird. Um, So we've got this vigilant bird. It has to balance its time between finding food and avoiding becoming food. So that means that that bird may not actually have enough feed that they've accumulated to feed all of their offspring and maybe some don't survive, right? Right. Okay, but if that parent wasn't vigilant, like everybody's automatically right there, they think, boy, that's so sad. That's bad. But if that parent wasn't vigilant, they would become dinner. And that means all of their offspring would likely die. And obviously that parent would never ever again be having more babies affecting the overall population to some degree. So again, I I know you mentioned it before, but that balance is really, really important.
1: Okay, but surely it's not just about surviving predators. There, there's other things that can cause wildlife PTSD, right?
0: Actually, yeah. So I was reading this study, the one that I was actually referring to that was talking about measuring with the um, amygdala and the hippocampus. It was a study from uh, Lena Zanette and, and a big group of authors that she did some research with. Um, and they were also talking about PTSD related to, immobility and inescapability, like where the animal is is suffering because it can't, it's immobilized. It can't go anywhere. It can't escape Um, because that fight or flight thing is triggered. They want to have that flight and they can't. There was one thing um, that you were telling our listeners about in an episode, I don't know, a few months ago about this paralyzing fear when that little animal that Mr. Johnson is holding you know, seems almost calm and still. Do you remember that? Well,
1: I, I might be wrong here. I, I think in one of the past episodes, we mentioned about capture myopathy, but, but that's actually a biological shutdown of an animal system where they get, they literally get so scared and so stressed out that their organs fail. And sadly, that often leads to death. But I, what you might be talking about, when you have this small, feeble little critter, whether or not it's a bird or a bunny, and and someone someone gargantuan like a human picks up this tiny, helpless little critter and they're holding it in their hands, and everyone thinks it's oh, it's so calm and docile, it likes being petted. Sadly, the reason it's so calm and docile is oftentimes it's because it's it's absolutely scared shipless. <laughs> And I said shipless because I do know your mom listens.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say so it's that's running not around what with I a ship. So there's no ship with a P that was with a, a I, a I, I said it with a P.
1: So I know in trouble.
0: <laughs> I heard but, but
1: it. That's not what I meant. <laughs> so you're so, right. So, yeah,
0: the, the term I was thinking about, you're right. It was the capture myopathy, which so obviously that's gonna be a super duper extreme form where it's scared to death so much that yes, quite literally its system it shuts it down. It down. But the the article did um, it did refer to so it's I guess it would be that lesser um, where they you know the the animal is just it seems calm because it's literally just it can't move yeah it's it's literally petrified because it's so scared um, so in theory that can lead to PTSD you know it, as far as animal wildlife PTSD now not not to take a major turn left here. But when you and I were originally chatting about this and that original article that kind of spurred all of this, one of the things that came up um, that you had kind of asked about was if animals understand death. Now, I'm I'm putting words in your mouth here, but I'm curious. Did that come from that article referencing how elephants who grow up after their mom is killed tend to run amok like a, a wild band of teenagers?
1: Uh, not exactly. And I realize we can't likely like delve into that topic tonight about how animals understand death, uh, but that whole teenagers running amok bit. Do you think that could be related to PTSD
0: from watching their moms? I mean, personally, no. Um, while it's not out of the realm of possibility, I think that's easier to relate to the rebellious teenager who goes up, you know, grows up without a strong parenting influence, you know, without somebody to always explain the rules and enforce the rules, and you know, enforce following those rules. Things can always go sideways, sometimes pretty badly. But I mean, that's that's personally what I think because we see the same thing in in cougars, for example. What do I don't know? What do you think?
1: Well, can I relate back to that article in the Atlantic? Sure. Since since we were talking about elephants, there there was a couple of paragraphs where where they were talking about taking their jeep. I don't know what preserved there were on in africa and they rounded a corner and there was a was it a female elephant that was standing in the middle of the road do you recall There, there was there was an adult elephant standing in the middle of the road and and they said typically in that situation they shut off the jeep and they sit there and that calms the elephants and then the elephants just go about their business and one particular day they rounded the 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 turn in the road and there was an elephant in the middle of the road and so they shut off the jeep and the next thing they knew the elephant charged and their jeep was upside down and they barely escaped with their lives and what they what they immediately jumped to is they said oh that that animal was radio collared four years earlier i don't know if it was years or months earlier but they they said that animal underwent some trauma and it took it out on the jeep that day and so th- they, they were kind of equating that and to be honest with you stuff i thought man that that's a stretch to kind of point the finger at that particular event how do you know that <laughs> that the elephant just wasn't ha- having a bad day because it got a thorn in its toe <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so and it was that. yeah it was I just was getting a little, huh, that's a stretch here and there with, with that article. So,
0: Yeah, I mean, it's very, very, uh, that is very arrogant of us. Oh, well, that, that animal did that. And I know exactly why. That just feels very arrogant. But anyway, what else do you want to talk about related to animal PTSD?
1: Okay, well, I've, I wanted to add something. You, you've been on such a role. You, you are doing such a great job explaining things but if if i can add something about this whole pstd bit uh
0: there's one you can add something about ptsd
1: what did i say
0: pstd pst
1: (laughs) i I won't even come up that's a
0: different that's a different type (laughs) of trauma buddy
1: yes so uh i wish i had editing capabilities because i have so many blunders on this thing so anyway Going back to that article, I think the, the article that that was just so you know that was a chair squeaking. I accidentally <laughs> <laughs> nothing nothing else squeaking over here. So um, th- this article, I think it was. <laughs> would you? Sorry,
0: <laughs> you shouldn't. Sure I like thought I was all honk in the background. I didn't even think anything, and then you turn around and say something. Well, like I that didn't and want you. her five year old,
1: what kind of bodily function was that? <laughs> so anyway. Are you good? I'm good. Okay. Th- this article on wildlife PTSD. Me personally, I, I think it was just giving this, this whole phenomenon way too much of a human slant. Because think about it. PTSD is what we humans describe that, that anxiety that we get from a near-death experience. And so let me ask you this, Steph. What does the D stand for in PTSD? Disorder. Exactly. And in humans, disorder implies some type of negative issue, or, or let's say a bad thing. It, it's a disorder. If something is, is designed to keep you alive, although it might be a dog in the background, <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're on a that, roll. That's, not,
1: that's not near as ferocious as Bandit. But going back to the whole disorder thing, if something is designed to keep you alive, Although it might be a harrowing or stressful experience, I'm not sure we should equate that to being a bad thing, or, or in this case, a disorder. And so if if I was going to say, the, the way we could describe it is like PTSS, like post-traumatic stress strategy, or disorder just implies that it's a bad thing. And, and I, like I said, I think it's a leap because we're applying way too much human point of view to this whole issue.
0: Agreed. I I completely and totally agree. And you kind of got me thinking um on that because you know tra- trauma it keeps I, I you alive. <laughs> no, I, well I mean I, I don't mean to minimize what the animals feel or what they go through or what they experience when something is chasing them in an effort to make them prey don't get me wrong that I am not minimizing that that would be scary yes uh, if they were caught by said predatory animal and you know damaged pretty bad
1: that's more I, scary
0: <laughs> i could actually call that more like a ptsd because that is that is true trauma yes chase though it's it is more like you and i in a really heavy i i every time i bring up the traffic thing all i can think of is driving through atlanta at pretty much any time of day everybody's going 90 miles an hour seven feet from the the car in front of them and seven feet behind them to the next car six lanes of traffic fully each way and then you see suddenly brake lights coming on you know that that's a scary situation that we have to deal with all the time. It's part of our day-to-day. Being chased by prey animal or pred- predatory animals when you're a prey item, that is part of the day-to-day. I mean, I and, that, again, I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm just saying it's quite literally day-to-day.
1: Yeah. In both situations, whether driving in heavy Atlantic traffic or outrunning the bobcat that is chasing you, that's keeping you alive. That's a good, it's yes. not a disorder. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well and I I don't even mind the word disorder so much because when we're talking about PTSD to be quite honest we're talking about it's it is a psychological trait and it's generally people who have witnessed or experienced something that's traumatic and being chased I don't think qualifies truly as traumatic now watching let's just pretend here let's let's speculate wildly that animals have the same range of emotions as humans which I don't think is is necessarily the case but let's just say that for a minute if I you know was the the mom bunny and my offspring bunnies watched me get chased and then you know mauled and eaten by something and carried off that would be trauma um potentially you know but just that the chase itself is probably not trauma, just if if we're truly trying to apply that human label on it. But I think one thing that we have to always be very careful of, like you said, is using these labels that we create for constructs that we have defined based on our species. And then we're applying that label unilaterally to every species. That's like saying that my grass has PTSD because I mow my grass every other week. Huh. If we're truly being honest, that's it's very similar. It's actually probably even more so because I'm mutilating the grass every time I do that.
1: If you're and truly honestly, being if you're truly being honest, you don't do it every week. You miss a couple weeks I, here
0: said, and there. I said every other week.
1: Oh, okay, okay.
0: <laughs> every other week, yeah. I do actually. I'm pretty religious about the every other week thing, but I honestly don't think it's even fair to wildlife for us to do that to them. But I realize at the end of the day. You know, I'm not going to say it's not still a good effort that we're trying to do here, because I realize that we are just trying to find ways to understand more about the natural world around us.
1: You know what I love about these podcasts? Just just talking to you, talking about these wildlife-related issues, it, it's just always spurring more thought. And I think that's that's what our goal is here. And just even between you and I, what you just talked about, and I hate to beat a dead horse, but... Um, I, I think there's merit to that single, very impactful, traumatic event. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. Being chased, if you're a prey item, being chased is a daily event. It's not that single traumatic, oh my gosh, I'm I'm never going to forget this moment because it happens every single day. Now, where my mind wandered when you were talking about that, one of the things, hey, you know what I haven't talked about on this episode yet? bears, <laughs> bears. <They are> <laughs> but you th- he can th-
0: hear the excitement in my tone?
1: think about it stuff you, you know one of the things that they do now with bears that are just starting to become food conditioned like if they start coming into a campsite or a, a picnic area one of the things that the park rangers or biologists will do is they'll capture that bear and then they, they they'll sedate it they'll do a complete workup they'll Tattoo it, put an ear tag in. They'll pull a tooth, pull a tooth, and what they're finding is they can release that animal right there on site. They don't have to relocate it, and that stress of that one very very traumatic event of having a tooth ripped out and ear tags placed in, oftentimes that's enough to keep that bear from coming back into the campsite. It doesn't work all the time, but they're having a tremendous amount of success, and I could see where that event can actually be equated to that whole PTSD. What do you
0: think? I I'm not going to say that you're wrong there. I mean granted I don't like putting the PTSD label on but that right. is it's kind of cool though because it's like what they're doing is they're hazing the animal but getting info from it at the same time. So that's yeah. then that's that's good for us, good for the animal, you know, the animal gets a full workup so we know the health of the animal and you know then it it gets Tag so that, you know,
1: and it's it's a one time. It's just a one time scary event. It's not like um, someone uh, doing an air horn at the bear. They they might they might hear a a loud noise or yell or something all the time. Um, yep. but but being sedated and put under that is that big event that could actually have an impact on that animal okay
0: and like wait wait hold on a second because you just said you know an air horn so the first time a bear comes in the yard and he's not been around humans before and he hears an air horn and he about jumps out of his skin and then and, and I'm relating this to the the chase thing again how it becomes part of the day-to-day life because the second time the bear just you know shimmies a little when he hears the horn and the yep. third time he doesn't even bother to hear the horn there is there is no horn you know and I think that that's that's probably you're probably very accurate there because again I think that the trauma is really um, something that we have to consider but okay anyway
1: no I I think this is a great discussion and you you and I we can probably talk all day long about any particular issue and this was a good one I'm glad you picked it so anyway regarding this whole, Discussion we had tonight. I I think it's great that we strive to develop a better understanding of what's going on. But just keep in mind, and this is more so for our listeners than for you, Steph, is that the the science of animal emotions and kind of understanding what's going on in an animal's brain, that science is just beginning. And you know as well as I that the, the earliest discoveries in science are not always the end game usually those first discoveries, they start this long journey of learning. And that eventually leads to a much, much better understanding of what's really going on. So it just takes time, just want to caution everyone. So they don't say, Oh, we understand what's going on with wildlife. Now we know. Now we know what's going on. It it just opens up more and more questions.
0: And then and not to to bring this up, because we did talk about it on the animal emotions episode. But you and I, define emotions differently, what I experience and what you experience, we can use the exact same word, we can both say sad. And what I feel is true sad. And what you feel is true sad may not be anywhere in the same ballpark of each other. But we don't really have a great way of measuring that with humans that we can articulate things with. So thinking that we're ever going to nail down all of this emotion stuff, um, and psychological stuff, when it comes to animals that cannot communicate and articulate it, I, I don't think that we're really I don't think we're really going to to ever get to where we would have that end game. But with, with that, I don't know about you. Um, I'm shocked that we haven't missed an episode over the last three weeks. You know what I mean? Like we doubled up for everybody who doesn't know. Um, both of us were out of town last week. You know, Daryl was on his elk club that we were talking about and I was out in the Caribbean um, gallivanting around. And so the week before that, we actually, doubled up on podcasts before both of us left and then daryl actually published one of those episodes remotely to make sure that we were on track and here we are literally you just came out of the mountains this morning and here we are talking about this right after we both just got back so um it's a tough conversation it's a conversation that you and i both have a lot of of thoughts on but we don't have any great science to back us because there is no such thing as great science on this yet um, I will say next week, I do kind of hope we'll go back to like a species specific episode because topics like this one tonight, they're great because they do spur a thought, like you said, but they are tough.
1: Yeah, but tough is good, but uh, <laughs> I do like species episodes too. So we'll think of, we'll think of a, a couple of good species episodes coming up. I probably, I won't do elk cause I'd, I'd be long winded if we did elk and anyway, Let's, let's start wrapping this up. So you have, you have any shout outs this week since I'm getting the vibe that you're ready to put a bow on this one.
0: (laughs) I am. Um, And yes, actually, I don't know if she listens or not, but I'd like to give a shout out to my bud Becca. Um, She's always very much uh, a champion for the cause of wildlife. Frequently I get pictures from her saying, can you, can you validate the identity of this animal or, you know, this happened, what should I do? Um, And she is really always ready, like I said, to be a champion for the cause for wildlife. And I want to include that shout out to everyone else out there that's probably listening to our podcast who I know is doing the same. I just, I very much appreciate the effort there. So how about you? Any other shout outs?
1: I do. I actually, I I didn't even have time to think about this, but there's no way I'm going to forget these two gentlemen. As I started this podcast Telling what an awesome, awesome experience I've had over the test, the last ten days chasing elk. Uh, there's two, uh, two buds of mine from New Mexico, Jer- Jeremy and Delphi, and they were. I'm gonna believe it or not. I'm gonna equate them to dogs. And if if you're not a dog person, you won't understand. But Jeremy and Delphi were like the two best dogs you could possibly have. Jeremy was that skilled outdoorsman that taught me pretty much everything to know about elk hunting. So he was like one of those, those working uh, pointer dogs that would just, he just knew where to go, what to, what to do, how to react in every situation. Just phenomenal outdoorsman, phenomenal person. Uh, Delphi on the other hand was going to be my, well, maybe I shouldn't compare Delphi to a dog. He is like my pack mule. He accompanied me because he was really hoping I'd get an elk and he was going to help me carry it out. And I tell you what, the the thing that I love most about hunting stuff and, and you know this cuz we've hunted together at times, the camaraderie that comes together when you go out hunting and you learn things in the outdoors and just being with the other person, it makes for so much better experience. And I will say without those two guys Jeremy and Delphi on this this elk hunting trip for the first 4 days, It wouldn't have been um, near as good as it turned out to be. So, big shout out to Jeremy and Delphi for accompanying me. And I thank you so, so very much for taking time off of your work to uh, accompany me in one absolutely amazing place in northern New Mexico.
0: Awesome. Well, With that, here comes that bow, but I'd like to say that it's time for me to let you all know how much we, Daryl and I, appreciate your time and taking that time to listen to us. Uh, It means means so much to us. As always, you can join the conversation with us by finding, liking, and following us on Facebook. Just search for Wildlife For You, all spelled out. And of course, there's also our website at wildlifeforyou.com. And obviously you have discovered our podcast. So subscribe and make sure that you're notified when we have new content, which is usually about once a week, excuse me. And then I always say, tell everybody, you know, tell others, tell, tell that guy that's standing, you know, too close to you in the elevator and creeping you out that they need to visit uh, our podcast and subscribe because, you know. It, knowledge. In our world, knowledge, real knowledge, means everything. Um, and after all, we all need to remember that when it comes to wildlife,
1: your knowledge often means their existence. Good night, folks. So, Steph, <laughs> I've been on Facebook for almost 10 days, but prior to my elk hunt, I informed everyone that I was... I was going to be hitting the Elk Woods. Did, did you happen to see that post?
0: Uh, no.
1: Okay. Well, it just said pretty much I'm off to the Elk Woods. And one of the coolest things was a longtime friend a park ranger friend of mine from Great Smoky Mountain National Park, who I haven't talked to in a long time, he responded about the best thing about getting back to nature and truly enjoying that 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 passage or that that hunt that we all love is how in tune you get with nature. And he said, it's amazing. People don't believe it. But when he is out there in the outdoors for days on end, he can literally smell the animals he's hunting. And so when I was out there just last night, I was thinking I'm hunting elk and I began to smell this putrid horrific like rutting elk smell it, it, if you've ever smelled like a rutting elk it is just really really bad and then you know what uh kind of put me over the top was
0: I have a sneaking suspicion I was sitting alone in the woods for 10 days
1: I was sitting alone in my tent and I'm like what is that smell <laughs> <laughs> and so. it's you That was time to say, you know what? I had a good time, but I think I'm going to have a better time taking a hot shower. So anyway, (laughs) I'll tell you all about the Alcon. It was was absolutely fantastic. So good to be back. Bye.